Welcome to Echoes of Holiness podcast. 1969. It was a very good year. Out of tragedy in the jungles of South Vietnam comes triumph. At 22 years old, Dave Reaver discovered what General Sherman meant when he said, War is hell. A grenade explosion, six inches from his face, caused the loss of 60 pounds of flesh, 40% of his skin, but none of his spirit. My dad was a minister of the gospel and I grew up so very well acquainted with it. Uh, actually, if I had had a choice that somewhere out of eternity I could have looked across the face of the earth and chosen parents, I would have asked for Al and Lois Reaver. I've been blessed, friend. And whenever they add up all the gifts that a parent can give a child, theirs will not be tabulated in finances. It's going to be tabulated in love, and I've been given lots of it. It wasn't that kind of love that lets a kid do anything he wants. My dad was a strict disciplinarian, and if there's a teenager in this room, I hope you're listening. I never called my dad the old man. I never called mom the old woman. I called daddy sir. Mother, ma'am, I like my teeth in my mouth. <laughs> my dad never hit me in my life, but if he was going to, it'd be for something stupid like calling mother the old woman. I knew better than that. He didn't have to hit me anyway. The belt in our bathroom said, I need thee every hour on it. <laughs> I learned to respect him. He taught me to respect God. He taught me to respect the house of God. He taught me to respect the law. He taught me to respect older people he taught me many wonderful things but the most wonderful thing he taught me was about jesus and uh, <clears throat> growing up in church and when i say i was almost born in church that's honest truth they used to build a parsonage in conjunction with auditorium back in those days you know it's the back apartment and i was almost born in church but they got me to the hospital in time i went with mother <laughs> <clears throat> did you get it <laughs> But uh, whenever I grew up in that kind of atmosphere and environment and had tendencies for my rebellion, I thank God it never got out of hand. Even my rebellion then seems so minuscule today, you would have thought I was probably a, a child that uh, never gave his parents a problem. I'm sure I did in many ways, but I can tell you one thing. I didn't keep them up at night. I never had any reason to. I loved them. Somewhere, I, I don't know where it is that kids get the idea that they're supposed to rebel, but the way I thought about it, even as a kid, was I wasn't supposed to rebel. There wasn't anything wrong with obeying the rules. There wasn't anything wrong with keeping those rules that were for my benefit. I understood that. I did run away from home once. I was 15. I left at 5.30. I was back at 6.30. Supper was ready. And I've never stuck a dirty needle in my vein. I never smoked a joint of grass. Never snorted any stuff up my nose. Never had venereal disease. Boy, I missed a lot being raised in a Christian home. I love it. <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I love the fact that I missed a lot being raised in a Christian home. And uh, I don't know, I guess having never done those things, I was kind of hoping God could still use me anyhow. <laughs> 
I'm trying to give a message to your kids tonight. You don't have to be a junkie, a con man, a murderer, a rapist, a plunderer. You don't have to be ranked. You don't have to be wiped out so God can pick you up to give you a great testimony. The best testimony the world will ever hear is from a kid who never had to do that, and God didn't just get him out of it. He kept him from ever getting into it. Now, that to me is a testimony. for every junkie that's been set free. Don't misunderstand me. Goodness, please. Don't anybody misinterpret what I'm saying. I thank God for every alcoholic set free. I'm just glad I didn't have to go through all that to find out His grace to set me free from it. Oh, I had to be saved, believe me. At 16 years old, I was going to the same hell the rest of them were. Now, I'm going to tell you something. The days were coming in my life when that decision at the age of 16 would be the difference in life and death. And believe me, when you've been to the door of hell and back, you know the difference in life and death. You know the difference in living and dying a thousand deaths. I did a few things right. I married my high school sweetheart. <laughs> that was really smart because she was smart. She had straight A pluses. I was in the top 10% of the lower one-third of my class. They said, uh, what are you going to do when you get out of here? You know, where are you going to go to college? I said, I want to be like my daddy. I want to go to a Bible college so I can learn how to preach. And I went to Bible college and found out that Adam and Eve did not have belly buttons. <laughs> but I enjoyed Bible college and it was a wonderful experience and has been one of the great anchors of my life and ministry. But I had a shocking experience coming and that was that the school bill had to be paid. Now, Dad never said he was going to pay my school bill. I just thought he was. <laughs> he gave me $50 once. <laughs> he bought a book. So I got a job. I worked at General Dynamics over in Fort Worth. I had a wonderful job. The only trouble was I got to where I made so much money. My check went up. And I, I worked more than I studied. My grades went down. I was used to that, and it didn't bother me at all. <laughs> but I got a letter in the mail from Uncle Sam because somewhere he assumed I was in college to avoid the draft. And the letter from Uncle Sam said, Greetings, nephew. <laughs> they told me to go take a physical. Well, I wrote back and said, Dear Uncle, I feel fine. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. I took the physical exam. It's the only exam I passed that semester. <laughs> I was so proud of that. <clears throat> on my way in, I was listening to Paul Harvey on the news. He was on at noon. I was driving in to take my physical. And he was telling of a man who went and had all these teeth pulled so they wouldn't draft him. That's a true story. Now, I'm not making any of this up. He had all of his teeth pulled so they wouldn't draft him. He took his physical, he flunked it because he had flat feet. <laughs> I took my physical and they told me I was going to be inducted in the Army. I passed it, so I began thinking about it. What do I do about this? Because I didn't know anything about military. I figured they were going to draft me, put them in the Army send me to Vietnam, shoot me, put me in a doggy bag, send me to America, bury me, end of story. And I'm not into guns and war and G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip, you know. <laughs> and I'm definitely not into doggy bags. <clears throat> and if I sound like a war protester, you missed the point completely. I was a chicken. <laughs> I did not want to get hurt and see pain hurts me. And I avoid it all that I can. 
So I sat on the edge of my bed all that night thinking, in the morning they're going to draft me. What are my alternatives? Well, I was, as I said, too chicken to go to Vietnam, but I was too proud to go to Canada. And where does a proud chicken go? <laughs> Kentucky. <laughs> this is a religious occasion, and I have to remember, I'm not in a public school. Uh, I do speak to a lot in schools. I speak to a quarter of a million teenagers every year in public schools. I just finished the tour of schools in Sacramento, California. It's really fun to walk out and look at them. They look at me. There's two or three thousand students in the gym. They're scratching their head wondering what happened to me, and I'm scratching my head wondering what happened to them. <laughs> I say, hi, I'm Dave. I have stars. You have pimples. We're even. <laughs> Some of them come to school with their heads shaved on both sides and pink strips and yellow and purple things on top of their head. Looks like a NBC peacock. Got an education. <laughs> anyway, uh, <clears throat> I finally decided what I would do that morning. I said to myself, self, join the Navy. Nobody floats a battleship in a rice paddy. You see what I mean? I went down and joined the Navy. My second day in boot camp, they told me I was going to Vietnam. And they began training me in a place called San Diego. And then sent me south of there to Coronado Island. And there I began running in my training for riverine warfare and trained with a group and running with, with a group called the SEAL Team, which I'd never heard of before in my life. I was soon to find out that that was the meanest bunch of people that had ever decided to be in the military. That they liked to be mean. They liked blood. Theirs or anybody else's, it really didn't matter. I'd never been around people like that. They made Rambo look like a brownie. We ran eight miles every day for eight weeks. And if you've never seen a fat boy run eight miles, it's totally awesome. <laughs> Fifteen minutes after we got through running, I was still jiggling all over. <laughs> I lost so much weight, I had to tease the hair on my legs to keep my socks up. They said, they said, we're going to teach you how to live without eating food. I learned to do that in the Bible College cafeteria. We prayed for our food there, intercessory prayer. But we never laid hands on it with our eyes closed. <laughs> then they said, we're going to teach you how to use your hands and feet like weapons. I was supposed to be able to walk up, kick a man in the face, splinter the bone in his nose, drive it in his brain and kill it. Now, I didn't, so don't get excited. But just knowing I could made me feel like Joe Cool. Then I found out you have to find your fool who's going to stand there and let you kick his nose into his brain. We, we practiced kicking at seven-foot targets. I got to Vietnam, but everybody was four and a half feet tall. I hopped over. I missed. The embarrassing part was when I screamed, Kung Fu! And they said, M-16! I said, peace, brother. <laughs> and they trained us in everything they thought we needed. But the big problem was nobody ever trained me in how to say goodbye to that lady right there. Nobody ever talked about how to say goodbye to Brenda. And I want you to understand that, folks, this the most difficult thing I ever did to myself emotionally was when I kissed her goodbye. I got on a plane and went to Vietnam. People said to me, how could you do it? I said, I puckered my lips. <laughs> I know what they're saying. 
Hey, what they're saying is, oh man, you know, like, Vietnam was such an unpopular war. How could you fight in such an unpopular war? But frankly, I didn't know that a guy can have fun fighting in a popular war. Oh, I would have certainly gone for the good times, you know. <laughs> I mean, after all, you go around only once in life, so go for all the gusto you can get. Fight a popular war or no war at all. Well, see, popular war sounds to me like popular leprosy. I'm going to tell you what I tell the kids in the schools. This is no ego trip, folks. There's no glory in disfigurement. I remember when I sat in school and my face matched on both sides and I didn't even know to be thankful, but you hear me. War did it. I hate war. It rapes, it plunders, it disfigures, it dismembers, it destroys. And for God's sake, if there's an alternative, take it. But I want to tell you something. Yes, I hate war. But more than I hate war, I hate slavery. I love this country. I'm going to make it clear to you. I am a Vietnam veteran, but I'm proud of my scars and stripes. And I'm proud to be an American. I ended up in Vietnam right on schedule and found the shock of my life when I got over there. I found out my biggest problem was not the guys in the bushes shooting at me. It actually became the guys in my barracks. The Bible told, told me, and I'm sure if you've read it, it tells you that the enemy that can destroy your soul is a more devastating and fearful enemy than the one who can destroy your body. And I discovered that in Vietnam, in the very close quarters we lived, I was uh, one of the very few, and to my knowledge, I was the only one not taking shots for venereal disease in our little group. And I'm not saying that to put any of them down. I'm just telling you the way it was. And because I did not have venereal disease, and because I did not take the shots, and when the medic came with his big old needle, I said, what's that for? He said, this is your VD shot. I said, get out of here, man. I don't want VD. <laughs> he said, stupid. This is to keep you from catching it. I said, I know a better way. He said, what's that? I said, stay true to your wife. That immediately brought heckling and laughter from the other guys who thought I must have been the nerd of the Navy. Not only did I not take their shot, which I didn't want the shot anyway, I'm scared of shots. But I want to keep my relationship with my God, with my wife, and with myself, if a man can have a relationship with himself. And that is simply to say, I want to be able to sleep good at night. And I'm going to tell you folks, it may not be popular nowadays, and I'm not trying to put down anyone who's gone through divorce. God Almighty knows that. I just want the kids of America to know divorce does not have to be planned for when you're taking your vows. From this point on, I want every person that's listening that has a good marriage, please understand, you do not have to lose that marriage. Now again, please, don't, don't get tensed up and get nervous. I'm just saying, 20 years ago, I made vows to my wife. It wasn't convenient at times in Vietnam, and it definitely was not always easy. But the rewards that have come by keeping those vows outweigh all the days of loneliness I experienced in Vietnam to be able to come home and look that girl in the eyes with the same cleanliness I did when I married her. And just for the record, virginity is not a dirty word. Respect each other in your dating and it makes a great marriage. So we didn't get along real good in Vietnam. They nicknamed me, three guys on my team. They called me Dudley Do-Right. They called me Dr. Do-Little. 
and they called me preacher man. I call them pervert number one, pervert number two, and pervert number three. That's the honest truth. That's how they got along, the preacher man and the three perverts. On the 26th of July, I picked up a white phosphorus hand grenade, and I prepared to throw it at an enemy bunker to burn down the high brush to detonate what I assumed were booby traps planted in front of the bunker and thirdly to put up a lot of smoke because my job was to go into the bunker and bring the enemy out alive. I looked at the opportunity before me and knew that I didn't have much choice, so to burn the stuff down I chose the particular grenade that burns white hot, it burns underwater, you cannot extinguish it until it burns itself out, and uh, it's devastating. I pulled the pin on the grenade and drew it back to throw it, and while it was in my hand beside my head, suddenly the hand grenade exploded. I didn't know if I'd been shot, I didn't know if a rocket had hit us, I had no idea what happened. I was told by the doctors that fragments of a bullet were pulled out of my hand. I was told by others it was a faulty grenade, irregardless, the results are identical. When the hand grenade exploded, 40% of my skin came off of me. 60 pounds of my flesh went up in smoke. And I looked down and laying right in front of me was half my face. It had peeled it right down to the bone and was laying right there. Then it burst into flames and a gentle breeze turned the ashes into a whirlwind and it blew across the deck and it was gone. Then I noticed that my chest was gone and I knew I wasn't dead because I could see my heart beating. My back was on fire was dripping off my arms, my left thumb was blown off, my right hand was severed in half with the exception of that finger. These don't work at all, they just make a good mic stand. <laughs> but God knew I needed my preaching finger. He kept it right where it belongs. I went blind in my eye and deaf in my ear. I wear a full hairpiece and a, an artificial ear. It's plastic, it comes off, I won't, but it does. <laughs> a, a girl asked me why she said, how do you play the piano? I said, by ear. I took it on and played, Mary had a... <laughs> she said, oh, stop it. She said, you're eerie. <laughs> eerie nothing. You're sitting there saying, that poor guy got brain damage, too. <laughs> Contrary to popular opinion, there was no Dane damage. <laughs> Never mind. I jumped off the boat in the water, and I continued to burn. My skin was floating all around me. I was beside myself. <laughs> I'm sorry. I needed to pull myself together, didn't I? <laughs> I came up out of the water. The first words I said, and I quote verbatim, I yelled at the top of my voice. I said, God, I still believe in you. And when I said it, pervert number two gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And he's still serving God today. We're all in talk show. A young fella called up. He says, this is Dave Reaver. I said, yes. Said, you the guy that's in Vietnam? I said, yes. He said, were you in River Division 573 station on Mobile Base 2 in the Mekong Delta with the West Coast SEAL team? I said, yes, 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 and yes. He asked four questions. <laughs> he said, was your buck underneath a guy named Mickey Block and he called you preacher man? I said, pervert number one. Had to be him. Nobody else knew all that. I said, Nick, I thought you were dead. He said, well, I thought you were dead. I said, well, I heard they blew your leg off. He said, well, I heard they blew your head off. I said, they did, and I have a plastic head and a real ear. He said, well, I have a plastic leg. It's all artificial. He'd been drinking. He'd been on drugs. His marriage was falling apart. He'd even put a gun to his head and 
with everything else he lost, he lost his nerve and he couldn't pull the trigger. Now he's on the telephone saying, can we talk? I said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm really busy right now. I can't get to you. <laughs> Are you kidding? I said, you better know I can talk. I said, you meet me tonight at 7.30. I told him the church I was going to be at. Well, 3,000 people showed up. I couldn't find one face I hadn't seen in 13 years among 3,000 I'd never seen in my life. I was so distracted looking, I don't know what I said to the people until I finally stopped and said, I can't go on, I gotta know it's pervert number one here. 146 people stood up. I'm kidding, I'm sorry, I don't... I turned around and I said, Pastor, please be seated. <laughs> No, I said, uh, <laughs> I said, is Mickey Block here? Well, way in the back, this young fella stood to his foot. And he started down this slightly inclined floor, and his artificial leg was more like a pole vault. Every time he'd set that leg, it threw him about three feet further than he wanted. He ended up running, and I met him down front, braced myself, and caught him. And that night, in front of several thousand people, Pervert number one and the preacher man had a little reunion from Vietnam and I got news for you. He was the meanest man I'd ever known. In Vietnam, I'd pray for him. You better know it. His bunk was above mine. He'd spit on the back of my head while I prayed. I just kept praying, oh God, kill him. When you pray like that, always put a little tremble in your voice and convince God you're sincere or stupid. I never knew what was in my bunk, under my covers, or in my locker when I came in and he had been there first. He tormented me. He and his pervert number three buddy killed a man, dragged his body up, sat on the dead body and ate lunch. He was the most callous human being I'd ever known. But then it wasn't without cause. When he was a baby in his cradle, his mommy and daddy burned holes in his back with a lit cigar. The state took him away. He goes to Vietnam, it's his turn to put holes in people. If you're gonna come stretch your stuff, you got the wrong man to impress, because I'm gonna tell you, I've seen the meanest, the ugliest, the sorriest, who at the touch of Jesus Christ will confess his name and be transformed into the finest. Christian gentlemen, I have the pleasure of knowing Nicky Block is a preacher of the gospel today, sharing the love of Jesus around the world. Let's give the Lord a clap off. Then in April of 1985, I was in Massachusetts, happened to be in Boston, and quote-unquote accidentally came across pervert number three, who said, you're not getting me in that church there tonight. So I flew in pervert number one, we set an ambush, and pervert number three gave his heart to Jesus. All three of us serving God today. It's good news in the name of Jesus. When I crawled out of the water, I was still glowing white hot. They rolled me onto a stretcher. And they rolled me onto the stretcher and took off running. They rolled me over face down. And the phosphorus began to fall out of me. Holes had burned completely through me. I was breathing out my chest, my back, my right ear, my nose, and my mouth. My dad always told me when I got older to be a holy man. <laughs> he never intended it to go that far. And they rolled me over, took off running, the stretcher caught on fire, ripped open, and I fell out on my head. I'm telling you, it was just one of those days when nothing goes right. They rolled me up and 
Wet blankets in the helicopter. Medic thought I was dead. He sent out my death report. When they get through, they stick the dog tag in your teeth, but mine is so far apart the thing wouldn't stay, so he's holding it, going to kick it down in my gums, which is okay if you're dead. If you're not, it's a pain in the gums. He started to hit me, and I mustered what little strength I had left, and a little squeak went through my vocal cords. It didn't go out everywhere else, and I said, Medic! And he almost jumped out of the helicopter. The pilot, trying to control him, lost control of the thing. We were dropping like a rock, and this is what went through my mind. Dear Lord, we're going to crash, and I'll be the only survivor. <laughs> Two weeks after my injury, they opened me up, and I burst into flames again. Inside of me was enough phosphorus that was burning ever so slowly that just the slightest hint of oxygen and it exploded. They got me to Saigon and then sent me to Japan and I really stupidly asked for a mirror. And they brought it and I looked up in the round piece of glass that reflected my image. It's one of those kind of women used to pull on their eyebrows, you know. It makes a pimple look like Mount St. Helens. And they held that thing over my face and half of a skull, the whole right side of my head was a skull glared back at me. This side was thrown to the width of my shoulder. It was the first time I'd seen what was left of my face, and for the only time in my entire life I was on drugs, and it was not by choice. They put the needle in me and started pumping in the drugs, told me the Red Cross lady would take my last will and testament, and I knew then I didn't have anything to leave my wife. I didn't have any money. Just a little bit tucked in my boot. I didn't have any land. I didn't own a, a grain of sand on this earth. And I told the lady, I said, I don't have anything to leave her. And then I, I remembered something. I said, but I've got one thing, and that's her memories of me, that I was faithful unto death. The way I promised. And when they walked away, I went into the deepest depression of my life. The drugs had so mesmerized my brain that it felt like my mind and my body were in two different places at once. And I hope that dear Jesus will forgive me for what I did, but I tried to take my life. I pulled the tube out, and I jerked it with everything I had and laid my head back and waited to die. And I got hungry. <laughs> I pulled the wrong tube. I grabbed lunch. They don't mark which is which. I'm laying there thinking, boy, I should eat. I could kill myself some other time. doctor came in and chewed me out. He said, Mr. Rover, my name is not Rover, excuse him, Ma. It is Reaver, Dave Reaver. Thank you. Never call a suicidal patient a dog. He said, Mr. Rover. I said, what, Dr. Fido? My nurse's name was Nancy Bowser. We had a three-dog night. <laughs> he said, we think you're going to live. They sent me to America and put me at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. I was there for one year and two months. Had the sheep pulled over me twice. But I got news for you folks. 
They only thought I was dead. I still had the life of Jesus in me. Of 13 of us, 12 died. One lived. People have asked me if I live with guilt over Vietnam. I said, no. I live with guilt because I'm the one who lived. Those guys did not want to die. They did not want to suffer. And if I tonight seem to come across with a little more vehemence than maybe a few of you would appreciate, just remember, I'm trying to live this life 12 times more vehemently than I would have to ease my troubled conscience. A woman came into the man beside me. He had no skin on his body at all. He could not live. It was impossible. He might as well have been beheaded. It just takes longer to die when all of your skin is gone. The doctor said by sheer human indomitable spirit and will that he lived long enough to see his wife. And she walked in, stood at the foot of his bed, took off her wedding ring, placed it between his charred feet. She said, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. So you're going to tell me how tough life's been on you? You want to compare scars tonight? Oh, I'm no great one. I'm just going to tell you we all suffer. But we don't all give up. What you do about it is your choice. I said, oh my. My wife will walk in. She'll look at me. And that little high school sweetheart will finish this relationship. I couldn't imagine her. I just couldn't imagine her teenager keeping her vows when her handsome young prince turns into a frog. <laughs> well, handsome and young. <laughs> okay, young. <laughs> frog. <laughs> Almost croaked. <laughs> okay, we <we're> were... <laughs> Almost croaked. <laughs> okay, we we'll move along. That's all. No more. The door opened and a 19-year-old girl a little sweetheart who made life beautiful for me. Came swinging through that door, walked over, read the chart on my bed, read the tag on my arm, made sure they matched. Convinced I was me, she bent down and kissed my face, the worst burnt part of my body, looked me straight in my good eye and said, I just want you to know I really love you. Welcome home, Davy. And when she says, Davy, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> She kissed me with a kiss of life. I'm going to tell you something, gentlemen. Don't get too busy to open the door for her. Don't get too busy to open the door for your wife, man. Don't get too busy to hang that coat on her shoulder. My mother went to her grave without ever really knowing what the car door button was for. I think she figured if she pushed it, it would start and take off and leave her. Daddy always did it. And I watched Daddy be a gentleman. My son watched me treat my wife the way I do. He opens the door for a lady. And I'm going to tell you, I think there's still chivalry as long as there's a Christian gentleman left. I looked at Brenda and I said, I'm sorry, sweetheart. She said, why are you sorry? I said, because I can never look good for you again. She said, ah, oh, Davy, you never were good looking anyhow. <laughs> that was her way of saying, 
I love you for who you are, not what you look like. I left that hospital, I had one eye, one ear, and one nostril. This whole side of my head was smooth skin, no ear. They covered my eye up because they said I'd never see out of it again, but me and Jesus faked them out. I got perfect vision and perfect hearing. God has restored them both to total normality, for which I'm forever thankful. People, people ask me, why do you wear glasses? I said, because I look cool in glasses. <laughs> and actually, I, I wear them for cosmetic reasons, just to balance my face a little. Put my name on them so I'd remember who I was. <laughs> Evad. <laughs> Excuse me, Dave. <laughs> Never mind. But my, I had no hair at the time. I mean, it was all just smooth skin. It looked like a roll-on, you know. And little children were just utterly scared to death of me. They'd scream and run into stuff. And especially when I'd go, ah! <laughs> I love to see little kids scream and run into stuff. I saw a little boy sucking his thumb on the front row of one of our meetings. I looked at him, I said, boy, don't suck your thumb. He went, mama! <laughs> that was the beginning of my deliverance ministry. <laughs> I was in Fort Worth driving my car for my very first time out all by myself, just driving. And a man was out, I guess, just driving for the same reason to get out. While I was sitting at the red light, he was making a left turn in front of me. And he looked over and saw this man with one eye sitting there, whistling with half of a mouth. And he continued to stare while he drove his car into the Dairy Queen. And he said, drive in. behind my steering wheel and laughed till I cried. I laughed what was left of my face off, I'm telling you. And I was in a total trance when the guy behind me was in a, another trance. The light had changed colors three times. He had changed colors four times. And I knew if I didn't leave, he was going to come up there and hit me. So I took off, looked up, ran the light, hit my brake, and he knocked my bumper off. Everybody at the Dairy Queen thought I was drunk till I got out and they saw me and then they thought they were drunk. I went back to the guy behind me to apologize. <laughs> he rolled his window up. I looked at him and I thought, I'm going to tell him. Whiplash! Look what you did to my face, man. I'm going to sue you. <laughs> and if you say, well, Dave, you know, it's just a little out of hand, this laughter stuff. How much of it can I believe? Well, I'll just answer it for you. All of it. Because if I could... I would have wished these scars away long ago. And one day I went into my daddy's church, fresh out of the hospital and I got on my knees. And in his old church there were altars across the front. And I got down on my knees and I crawled all the way around the altars and I said, Jesus, take it all away. I don't want these scars anymore. I don't like this. It's no fun. Take it away. And then I thought, I'm not sure he's listening. So I started crying. I thought, surely this will get his attention. And I think I must have sounded like an old mooing cow crawling around those altars, bawling, saying, Jesus, please. 
take this way. I don't like being ugly. And I said, I, I don't think he's listening to me. So I really got serious. I said, God, take him away or else. I finally got a response. I think he said, or else what? I started crying again. And I crawled and I cried and I said, take him away or else. And when I thought about it, I said, I'm going to the back door of this church. And when I step through the threshold of this door, these scars better be gone. Folks, I'm telling you, an honest to God situation in the man's life. I was desperate. I didn't want it. I said, take it away. And when I walk through that door, they better be gone or else. And I kept hearing that question back to me, or else what? And I got to the door. I had put into effect every formula that I had ever heard you should do to make God do what he's supposed to whenever you tell him to. And I got to the door. I picked my foot up. And I lost my balance. I fell through before I could really get serious with it. And as I staggered to a stop on the other side, I felt so sheepish and so stupid. And I heard him ask me in my heart one more time, or else what? And I said, God, or else I'll just go on serving you the rest of my life like you had of because you're still the potter and I'm still the clay and what you make of me is your business and I'll love you anyway. <laughs> Dave Reaver.